Well, this is week number six of a series that we're in called God of the Underdogs. And I, for one, am loving this series because the more I study underdogs in Scripture, the more I realize what an underdog I am and how other people in life are more qualified, more talented. Uh, They have more resources. They have every reason to be more successful than me when it comes to things God's called me to do. But I love, I love hearing stories of how God used underdogs throughout Scripture to accomplish great things. Uh, For whatever reason, I can't explain it, God doesn't always go to the best and the brightest and the most talented uh, and ask them to do something great for him. He typically goes to people like you and me who may not feel as though we have everything together, and he tends to use us to accomplish great things. And so the heart behind this series is very simple, and that's that you would believe, along with me, that it just might be you that God wants to use to do something incredible and great in this world. And so we want to encourage you to make the most of the life God's given you and find your purpose and lean into it and let him do some incredible things in spite of your limitations or in spite of what you may see as limitations. And so we've studied several characters throughout the Old Testament uh, and one in the New Testament as we've looked at this underdog principle and theory. But today we're going to look at um, a man named John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Um, and before I do, let me, let me just say this. One of the things that I love about watching a game where an underdog beats uh, someone who is supposed to win uh, in sports is, is hearing an interview after the game uh, from either a player who had a great game who wasn't supposed to have a great game or from a coach of a team that won a game that they had no business winning is hearing their reaction to victory and hearing uh, that it's not really surprised that I can't believe we won this game, but it's, it, it's typically more of we understood that there were some reasons that we shouldn't win the game or, or that we should be limited, but we just believed. There was something in us that just believed, and we pulled together and we won this thing. And hearing that belief, hearing the conviction that even though people thought we would never win, we believed, we knew deep down inside that we could win. I love hearing that, and it encourages me. But today, what I want to do is I want us to hear from uh, an underdog, from John the Baptist. I want us to hear his words as they encourage us along his journey towards doing what God's called him to. And we have the benefit of of five things that he encourages us with as we seek to be uh, underdogs who accomplish great things for God. Now, when you think of John the Baptist, at least when I think of John the Baptist, again, I don't really think underdog because I've seen the end of his story. Uh, John the Baptist kind of came on the scene, and we read about him in Scripture as as being a man out in the wilderness, out in the desert, wearing uh, animal skins, and he was eating locusts and honey. He was just this, he had this radical approach to life. He wasn't your run-of-the-mill, ordinary, typical character in the New Testament. He was was radical in his approach, and he was bold in what he was called to do. Um, But the thing that we need to notice about him is that uh, he was actually a preacher's kid. His father, Zechariah, was a priest, and so he grew up in a tradition of the church that he belonged to, and he, he knew the right way that he was supposed to do things according to uh, the way he was brought up, but he was just a rebel, man. He went about things in such a different way, and I think that there are some things that we can learn from him because I think what makes him an underdog is the fact that uh, his dream was so bold and so daring and so out of the ordinary Uh, It was just radical. And sometimes when we have a bold, a radical dream, people don't always believe in it because it doesn't fit in what they've experienced. And so we're going to talk today about John the Baptist. If you have a Bible, go with me to Luke chapter number 3. Luke chapter number 3. 
Before we start reading, let me say this to uh, throughout this series, kind of the emphasis of the underdog story has been on us as individuals. And I've encouraged you, I've encouraged myself to find ourselves in the story of these characters and learn from them how they were successful in spite of their limitations. And today that's going to be the case as well. You're going to be able to see yourself in this story. Hopefully you're going to be able to learn some principles that can help you on an individual level. Specifically, if you have a dream that seems bold, if you're attempting to do something that's never been done before, if you have a desire to see Um, some injustice in the world corrected and you're going about it in a way that's never been done before, then hopefully today you'll find some encouragement. But I also want us today to focus from a perspective of our church, from Synergy Church. Um, I'll be the first to admit that our church is an underdog church, that when it comes to churches being highly successful, uh, the odds are stacked against us. In fact, in fact, um, 70% of church plants Churches that are started from nothing don't make it past five years. 50% of the churches don't make it past three years, and we've made it past three years, and so we're an underdog story. Um, Sadly, I had a conversation with a pastor this week that um, I've been in touch with sometime who started a church, and it's not going to make it. He's having to close the doors of his church, and and, uh, just the heartache that goes with a dream dying is is normal. It's normal. Maybe you've had dreams in your life on a personal level that have died, and that's, that can be normal. And, and you can find excuses as to why the dream died. You can find excuses why it didn't make it. Uh, but we've been blessed enough as a church that we've made it three years, and, and we're not facing closure. There's no conversation among our staff as to if we're going to make it another week or not. Uh, we believe God's got incredible things planned for our church. But let's just be honest, we're an underdog. We're an underdog. When we started our church, we didn't, we didn't branch off from another church and take hundreds of people and start this church. My wife and I, with one child at the time, were the first three members. And it took us a couple of months to get anybody else to join us, if I'm being honest with you. We didn't leave with hundreds of thousands of dollars and lots of resources to do things that some churches are able to do. We're an underdog church. We didn't have a huge following of people. We didn't have influence with people in this community. So we came to this community with a dream and a hope and a vision. And that was about it. It was kind of a scary thing. And God has been so faithful that that we grew from our our three in our family to 10 at the very core. And then we grew to about 35 before we actually started the church. And now we're, you know, over 100, about 115. And God's been really faithful to us. And though we have huge dreams for our church, we're honest about where we are. Uh, But the truth is we're climbing an uphill battle, right? People aren't flocking to our church. We've got lots of work to do, and sometimes it's hard work, and sometimes it's discouraging work. But I believe that God wants to use our church. I've chosen to believe that Synergy is an underdog that God is going to use in an incredible way. And I want us today to kind of journey together through this story, uh, through this passage, and see our church through the light of an underdog that God wants to use if we'll focus on, on five simple things. So Luke chapter number three, starting in verse number one, it says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor in Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias Tetrarch of Albine, excuse me if I got some of those names wrong, I tried my best. During the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, 
couple things I want us to notice about all these names uh, that I couldn't pronounce very well. Okay? Later in the gospel story, some of these names are going to come to pass. If you've heard the crucifixion story, if you've heard the resurrection story, you've heard of Pontius Pilate, you've heard of uh, Caesar, you've heard of Herod, you've heard of these characters who played leadership roles, authority roles in the government, who had a, a part to play in the story of Jesus. It was in that time period, in that setting, that John the Baptist comes on the scene. He, he's not just a man that appeared... Somewhere in history, he was a man who was sent into a divine place in history with a specific, specific mission. And his mission, noticing that his father was Zechariah, who was a priest, was to do things differently than they'd ever been done before. See, Jesus, the Messiah of the world, one sent from God to rescue humanity from sins, had been prophesied hundreds of years earlier, but Jesus had never come onto the scene until this time in history. And no one had ever prepared the way for Jesus to come on the scene until this time in history. And John the Baptist had been given a huge role and responsibility in the story of Jesus, unlike any man had ever been given before to play a direct role in the story of Jesus Christ. This was a man who had a huge dream. He had a radical dream. God had asked him to do something incredibly bold that had never been done before. And if you've ever attempted something that's never been done before, you understand how difficult it can be. Not just because you can't learn about something that's never been done before, you've got to kind of learn as you go, but because some people don't always believe in you when you're doing something that's never been done before. If you've ever fought an uphill battle like that, you can relate to John and you can understand that attempting to do something that's never been done before or attempting to do something in a different way than it's ever been done before is an uphill battle. And if that's you, you're an underdog. And like John the Baptist, it's a huge task and responsibility. Verse number four, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked shall become, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John the Baptist was the fulfillment of a prophecy that had been given hundreds of years before. That people knew, according to prophecy, there would come a man in the wilderness who would make straight the paths that lead to Jesus Christ, and he would prepare the way for the Lord. That's who we're dealing with here. A pastor's kid who grew up in a setting that I'm sure was pretty set in its traditions and in its ways and its customs, Things had been done in a particular way in his household as the son of a priest. And he knew that way, yet God was calling him to do something completely different. I can imagine a conversation that he had with his father when he tells his father, I'm going out to the Jordan, out in the wilderness, and I'm just going to start baptizing people and telling people that Jesus is coming. And his father, the priest, saying, well, son, you know, we kind of need to work you into the schedule at the synagogue. You know, we might give you a little time in front of people, you know, in the temple and kind of get you on your feet and give you a little bit of training. And, and he just says, dad, I'm not interested in that. I want to do something completely, completely Different, And I'm sure he found such resistance in that approach. And we're going to hear him begin to speak here. And there's five things that I believe that he speaks to us that we can learn from as a church, as we're attempting to do something in this community that I believe has never been done before. That as a church, we can accomplish something that hasn't been accomplished 
before. Verse number seven, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him. By this time, people had heard of John the Baptist, that he was baptizing people in the Jordan River. They were coming to him to be baptized. He was gaining a following. And listen to what he says to the people, how he kind of begins his conversation. You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, if you're a pastor, if you're a leader, and people are following you, one of the best ways to get people to stop following you is to begin to insult them from the very beginning. Wouldn't you think that? Wouldn't that just kind of be like, let's not quite take that approach to be harsh from the beginning. Let's kind of welcome them, say, glad you all came out. By the way, I want you to know something. But he doesn't do that. He's name-calling, you brood of vipers. You are not producing fruit in keeping with repentance. And by the way, if you don't produce fruit, you're going to be cut down like a tree and thrown into the fire. In other words, destruction is in your future. This is a man who is bold who doesn't care about being politically correct, who isn't interested in appeasing the masses. He's not looking to be, you know, the nice guy that everyone respects and looks up to. This is a man with a mission. And the first thing that I think that we can learn from him, if we want to be underdogs who are successful and accomplish great things for God, is that in our lives there needs to be consistency. Consistency. In other words, what we say we believe is consistent with our lifestyle and our actions. See, what was happening was John the Baptist, his, his, his ministry, if you will, had grown so much people heard about it that people were coming just to experience an event. They were coming to be baptized by John the Baptist, but at their heart level, they had no intentions of repenting or turning from the ways that they were living in. And he saw right through them. He saw that they were coming just for an event. It was just a religious experience. There was no true heartfelt change taking place in their life. And he was kind of getting angry, apparently, because he didn't care for people to simply have a religious experience. He was looking for their lives to be changed. And if we're going to be a church that, as an underdog, experiences God's best for us, there's got to be consistency in the life of our church. That we've got to be a church that consistently lives lives that we say we believe in. You know, one of the things from the very beginning of our church that we've always kind of held dear as a value, as a statement that says, we want to be known for what we're for, not what we're against. We want to be, as a church, known for what we're for and not simply for what we're against. If you've grown up in the church at all, you've probably heard statements from stages similar to this where you're told what movies not to watch, you're told what books not to read, you're told what places not to go, you're told what brands not to support, you're told what groups of people to vote against, you're told what politicians to get behind. And what we find is that the church is pretty infamous for telling people what they're against. We're against this, and we're against that, and you should be against this, and you shouldn't do that. But we don't really do a great job of telling people what we're for. If you want to know what people are against, your spouse will tell you that. Your parents will tell you that. You'll have a teacher. You'll have a coach that'll tell you something that you shouldn't be doing. But church shouldn't be a place that you come and get a finger pointed in your face. It's just my opinion. It's just my opinion. 
I don't find that the, that the thrust, the, the purpose behind the church is to point out flaws in people. Do you have flaws? Absolutely. Do I have flaws? Absolutely. I don't have to tell you. You don't have to tell me. We know that we're flawed people. We have issues. We have things that we struggle with that aren't godly, that we need God's grace and help to deal with. And so to use a platform that God's given us to point fingers at people and say, you know, you can't do this, you shouldn't do that. If you do this, you're in the wrong. I don't think is a wise use of the platform God's given us. But I think we should tell people what we're for. And what we're for is the love of Jesus. So, you know, there's no secrets around here. We're for the love of Jesus. We think that Jesus loves every one of us, no matter where we are in life or where we've been or where we've come from, that God loves us, that he loves us intimately, and he wants to have a relationship with us. And the one thing that I can point my finger at people and tell them is that God loves you. He does. He loves you, every one of you. And if I can convince people that there is hope in the love of Jesus Christ, then I think that we've stewarded this church and this platform pretty well. I think that as we go through Scripture, we deal with tough topics. We don't skirt around issues, that we don't hide behind political correctness, that there are issues in our community, in our world today that are sinful, that are ungodly, and and we don't pretend not to ever deal with issues and bring up issues, but the way we bring about issues is to speak the truth in love. That we want people to know the love of Jesus at the end of the day, no questions asked. And if we can be consistent in that, if we can be consistent in that, then people will know that we believe that Jesus loves them and they can experience the love that we show them. Then just maybe there can be a connection between that person and the love of God. That's the type of church that I want to pastor. I don't want to be the type of church, I don't want to be the type of pastor that loves to point fingers at others that finds someone when they're down and kicks them, who finds a reason to make someone stop coming because of something they've done. In fact, if you, if you ever want to really make me angry, I don't get angry too often, but if you ever want to really make me angry, let someone come to our church and feel condemned or unaccepted or feel as if they can't fit in or belong because of something in their life. Maybe it's the way they look, or maybe it's something they've done, or maybe it's something in their history. Maybe it's a lifestyle that they've embraced. If they ever come to this church and feel as if they're unaccepted or they can't fit in, then I'll just, I don't know, I'll come live it. I'm not sure what I'll do. It hasn't happened to my knowledge to this point intentionally. We're not a perfect church. But if we ever become a church that shuns people for whatever reasons, then I will feel like an utter failure as a pastor because we have to be consistent in showing the love of Jesus to people in our community if we're going to see God do incredible things through us. We're bold about it. We're passionate about it. And like John the Baptist, we don't hide behind events and circumstances. We want people to know what we're for. Now, he goes on to say, actually, he's asked a question in verse number 10. The crowd asks, what should we do then? He's telling them, be consistent. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Your life has to change. You can't just have a religious experience. And they say, what shall we do? And John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Now, he's talking about 
changing your life, that your life should line up with what you say you believe, that your religious experience shouldn't be limited to just an experience, but it should change your lifestyle and you should produce fruit. People should be able to tell that that experience has a place in your life. And people say, well, what should we do? And his first thing isn't to talk about your behavior. It's not to talk about how to deal with your past. He doesn't go into a huge monologue about how to fix things so that people see you in a different light. His, his main focus to start with is that you should be generous. You want to produce fruit in keeping with repentance? You've got to be generous. Did you know that we serve a generous God? That God loved the world. He loved you. He loved me so much that he sent, he gave his only son And did you know that that son, Jesus, loved us so much that he gave his very life as a sacrifice and as a ransom for you and for me? That the heartbeat of the gospel message is a gift. It's giving. It's being generous. And he says here, if you want to take a step towards being successful as an underdog, it's got to involve generosity. Now, I was taught from a young age the biblical principle of tithing, okay, that you give the first 10% of your income to your local church as a form of worship to God. And from a time that I was a child, my parents taught me that, and I've tithed as part of my life. When I got married, my wife and I tithed. We've always been generous. But I want to talk to you about the flip side of generosity for a few minutes, okay, because it's easy for me to say you should give and this is what that should look like, but I think that we all can relate to the benefits of generosity. See, a little over four years ago when we felt, Lindsay and I felt, God calling us to start this church, there was some sacrifice that came with it. We left a job that paid more than we were going to make, and there was a gap that had to be filled somehow, and that was filled by cutting some things out and losing some comfort that we had experienced on some levels. And I can remember, I can remember... Ends of some months where we just didn't know how things were going to make it. Like, how are we going to pay certain bills? How are we going to do certain things? And we were committed. We're always going to be generous. We're always going to give the first 10% to our church. That's the conviction that, that I believe firmly in, that God's called us to a standard. And so we would do that, and it didn't result in irrational wealth, like some people would teach. There were months that we were like, how are we going to make it? And listen, I can tell you, not like one time, not twice, not 10 times, not like 20 times, but I can tell you dozens and dozens of times where people were generous to my family. I can tell you about times where we went to the mailbox, not expecting to have anything in there, but opening up checks that covered perfectly amounts that we owed that we didn't know how we were going to pay for. I can tell you about times that people gave us gift cards where we didn't know exactly how we were going to eat some meals. I can tell you about times where people gave us Christmas gifts for our children when we weren't going to be able to provide Christmas for our children. And I can tell you that when someone is generous to you, it does something inside of you. It stirs up some kind of compassion inside of you that you can just relate to. And when someone is generous to you, it humbles you. It helps you to understand that you aren't where you are because of your own doing, but because someone else loved you enough to be generous to you. That's what I want our community to experience from our church. 
I don't want people thinking that our church just wants something from people. We're a church that wants something for people. But if we're going to be a church that, that offers something for people, then we have to be a generous church. We have to be a church that's willing to, to give. Now, if you're not a giver, I'm not talking about just giving to our church, but if you're not a giver, then you're missing out on some of the benefits of experiencing God's best for your life. Because if you're not giving, then there's a part of your life that's not aligning with the heartbeat of Jesus Christ, which is to give, which is to be generous. And if you're able to be generous, even if it's sacrificial, even if you don't know how you can give, and you give in the midst of your sacrifice, you can know with the confidence that God's going to use that generosity to do for others what they can't do for themselves. And at the heart of it, at the heart of it, there are people in this community that don't know Jesus Christ. And on their own, they may never know Jesus Christ. But I have a firm conviction that if we're generous and we're able to spread the message and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then they can experience the greatest gift that's ever been given. And that's the gift of salvation. And so we've got to be a a generous church. We've got to be a church that's willing to live outside of ourselves. That while society tells us that getting more is is the target, we've got to be able to say that we're not attached to what we have because at the end of the day, we believe Psalm chapter 24 teaches us that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. At the end of the day, everything that we have is God's and we're stewards or we're managers of what God's given us. And he's saying here, if you've got two tunics and someone doesn't have one, you should give them one. If you've got food and someone hasn't, you should give it to them. You've taught your kids this. You've taught your kids that they should share. You've taught your kids that if there's a kid that doesn't have something and you have something, that it's okay to share with them. But as we grow older, we forget the lessons we teach our kids. But as we're generous, more and more, we're positioning ourselves to be used of God. Verse number 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do as tax collectors? Now, you got to understand something about tax collectors in this day. I don't think tax collectors even today are very popular or very famous or very liked. But in this day, they were hated. They were corrupt people. They charged people more taxes than they owed because they wanted personal gain for themselves. They were dishonest. They were considered scum of the earth. Tax collectors were some of the worst people in this culture when it came to the way people viewed them. And so now tax collectors are coming to John Baptist to be baptized, and they say, what should we do to be consistent? And listen to what John Baptist says in verse 13. Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Don't collect any more than you're required to. He's talking here about integrity. He's talking here about being a people who are honest who do the right thing, who don't cheat people, who don't get things for people, who don't see people as a means to an end, but see people as the end. And they are the means to the people. You shouldn't collect more than people Oh, Here's a concern that I have with the church. I've grown up in the church my whole life, and so many times... The culture of the church, I don't think it's created intentionally, but it just happens this way, is a culture that almost demands perfection from people. I don't know if you've ever been in a church where you felt like 
perfection was demanded, but we teach that there are things we should do and we shouldn't do, right? There are people in our worlds that we admire because of things that they do. There's people in our churches that we admire because of who they are. And we somehow have gotten into this trap of feeling like perfection is the goal for our life. And if we're not perfect, then there's lots of work for us to do. And because sometimes the culture is perfection, we tend to not be authentic people. I mean, let's just be honest. If perfection is the standard, and if you're anything like me, you don't fit that mold, and you're not perfect, why in the world would you want to get close to people and let them know who you really are if you want them to see you as perfect? So if we value perfection, then what we're basically saying to people is, It's going to be really hard for you to be authentic and be yourself and really get to know people and share who you are deep down on the inside with people in this church because it's not really going to live up to what's expected. And it's hard for us in the church world to become accountable to people, to let people know who we really are because we're we're better at raising a banner of perfection than we are at extending grace to one another. Well, if we're constantly hiding behind masks and we're building walls to keep people out of places in our life, it's going to be hard for us to be people of integrity. It's going to be hard for people to know us for who we really are because we're constantly considering what people are thinking of us. And the last thing I want for our church is to create a culture where people feel like perfection is the goal. Some people go so far as to say, I've heard a few churches say, that there are no perfect people allowed in this church. I think the truth is is there are no no perfect people in this church. I think we can say that with certainty. And if we're confident in the fact that perfection isn't the goal for our church, that we don't expect you to be perfect because we know that we're not perfect, then we can create a culture in our church where people actually love one another and actually get to know one another and get to know them not just for their strengths but also for their weaknesses and their failures and the things that they're ashamed of. And love them in spite of those things. And care for them in spite of those things. And when someone falls down, we help them back up. We extend grace. We extend mercy to one another. But the church is infamous for beating people up, for kicking people when they're down. We expect people to be perfect, and we know that they're not. And so we create unauthentic community inside our church. And the last thing that I want is to just become another religious place that people come and have religious experiences, but never get to know one another and never have their lives transformed. You'll never become a person of complete integrity until you let people know who you really are. And when you let people know who you really are, then you can begin to be cultivated into who Jesus wants you to become. Otherwise, you're going to hide behind walls and masks, and you're constantly going to be worried about what people think about you. And you're going to feel as if they aren't, they aren't going to accept you. And so you're going to hide things in your life. And when you hide things in your life, you're no different than a tax collector who's lying to people about the amount of taxes that they owe because they want personal gain from them. Synergy, let's be a church that loves one another for who we are. Let's know that we're not perfect people. And let's give grace to each other. And when people are down, let's help them up. And let's love them in spite of who they are. That's what I love about synergy groups. We offer groups that meet throughout the week. It's the best place for you to get to know people in our church. Outside of synergy groups, we offer what we call team synergy, which is opportunities for you to serve. And serving on a team with people is another great way to get to know 
people. So outside of coming and attending on a Sunday and leaving, it's going to be difficult for you to actually develop deep relationships with people if you aren't intentional about it. And I hope, I hope that we can create a culture where people are intentional about being themselves and getting to know one another and loving each other in the midst of our mess and our chaos so that we can become people of integrity who actually stand for who we are. Then some soldiers, verse number 14, asked him, and what should we do? And John the Baptist replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. And he makes this statement, be content with your pay. Be content with your pay. I'm not going to ask us to raise our hands, but I have an idea that if, if I asked you how many of you feel like if you just had a few more dollars at the end of your month, do you feel like you would be more content? Most of us would say, you know, I think I would be more content if I had more money. If I just had a few more possessions, then I would feel more content. And you know what? It's a, it's a spiral that never ends where we constantly feel like if we had more, then we would be more content because we feel like our peace, our satisfaction, and our fulfillment comes from things. And it's a lie. It's a lie. If you can't be content with what God's given you now, why would you expect him to give you more? Why would you expect God to be like this open-ended ATM to just give you things that you're not satisfied with to begin with. And listen, as a church, we want more. I feel like there's so much more that God wants to do in our church. And I can't tell you the number of times that I've thought if we just had more money, we could, if we just had more people, we could, if we just had more influence, we could, if we just had, and I find myself just like in my own personal life, so many times thinking if we just had something else, then we would be able to do something differently or be in a different place. And especially this week, I just feel like God's just been saying as a church, we should be content with what God's doing in our church right now. We want more. We want to grow. We want to double. We want to quadruple. We want to reach thousands of people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't think that that is a selfish goal. I don't think that that is a self-driven approach to church. I think the opposite of that is completely the worst, to not be driven at all, to want to grow the church and to want people to hear the gospel. I think that's one of the most selfish things that we could ever do as a church is to say we don't want to reach more people. But at the end of the day, if we're constantly looking for something outside of what God's already given us as a requirement to accomplish what God wants to do, I don't think we'll be successful. I believe that God has given us everything that we need to be successful right now, right where we are, to get to where he wants us to go. He's given us everything that we need. We've got to steward it well. And we've got to become content, which means we find peace with where we are, which means we aren't driven by whims and desires outside of what God's blessed us with. In other words, we've got to start thinking inside the box instead of thinking outside of the box. Instead of saying, we've got to get stuff in the box so the box can grow, we've got to say, what's in the box? And let's love what's in the box. Let's be at peace with what's in the box.
And let's be content. And I want us to be a content church, but I want us to be a church that's passionate about growing because I believe that healthy things grow. If we're going to be a healthy church, I think that we will grow, but I think that our mentality always has to be a mentality of contentment. And then verse number 15, the last thing that we're going to talk about, says the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. This was a man, in spite of his radical approach, in spite of his bold words, in spite of his daring dream, had gained a following. And people began to see him differently. They began to put him up on a pedestal, and they began to wonder in their hearts, could this be the Christ? Is this the one we've been waiting for? Is this the Son of God? Is this the one who's come to rescue you for our sins? And I believe that John the Baptist was so passionate about his calling that he always deflected people to Jesus. I'm not the one you've been waiting for. I'm simply preparing the way for him. In fact, he's coming. He's greater than I. He's so great that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I pale in comparison to the one that I'm pointing you to. What was he doing? He was focused on his calling. He knew exactly what God had called him to do, and he didn't waver from it. He didn't allow the accolades of people. He didn't allow the comments from people. He didn't allow people's perspective of him to allow him to gain any type of prideful approach to what he was doing. But he was quick to point people to Jesus. And as a church, I want us to always be quick to point people to Jesus. It's all about Jesus around here. Our goals, just so you know, isn't to be the coolest church in town. We're not trying to be the hippest church in town. We don't want to be the church in town that people talk about as doing the most controversial things. Our, our goal isn't just to have a buzz around who we are because there's something that we're doing that's impressive towards people. Um, we're quick to tell you around here that it's all about Jesus. And we believe that there's hope found in Jesus Christ, that he is the Savior of the world, that he can do for you what you can never do for yourself. And until you experience the love of Jesus, you haven't experienced true life. We believe that with everything that's in us. And and no matter how big our church ever gets, we always want to stay focused on our calling, which we've always said from the beginning is to make Christ known in the lives of people far from God. There are people in this community that don't know Jesus Christ, and they're far from God. And our hope and our passion is rooted in in Jesus' final words, to his disciples before he ascended into heaven when he said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded them. And surely, his promise is, and surely I'm with you until the very end of the age. We're not trying to get a bunch of people in a room. We're not trying to raise a bunch of money for anybody's particular lifestyle. Our goal is for people to know Jesus Christ. And until everyone knows Jesus Christ, we've still got work to do. And we still have a mission that we need to stay focused on. And we still need to be passionate about reaching people with the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ and teaching them what it means to joining the mission to reaching people with the hope and the passion of Jesus Christ and teaching them 
to reach people with the hope and the passion of Jesus Christ. I want to be a church that's consistent. I want to be a church that's generous. I want to be a church of integrity. I want to be a a church that is full of our calling and passionate about our calling. I want to be a church that's content. If we'll do those things like John the Baptist, even though we're an underdog, God can use us for an incredible, incredible task on this earth, and we'll see him do great things in us and through us. Let's pray. Father, you have been so gracious to our church. You've brought us so far as a people. You've blessed us in ways that we can't even really count, if we're being honest. And my hope and prayer for our church, Father, is that we'll be a church that's driven by your calling on us. That our goal wouldn't be simply to have people in a room or to have a certain budget or to have a certain number of people volunteering or in groups, but that we would have a heart for people that you have for people. And we'll be focused on that mission. Help us to be generous. Help us to be consistent. Help us to be content. Help us to stay focused on our calling. And help us to be people of integrity. And as we do that, Father, I pray that your favor would rest upon us and you would use us together to accomplish the impossible. We know that we're underdogs and we know that there are churches better suited and better positioned to be used of you for great things, but we just believe that you've called us for a purpose and just maybe we could be the church to do something historic in this community. And I pray that we would cling to that. In Christ's name. I pray.